It's Friday, January 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Congress has affirmed the Electoral College vote for Joe Biden, and he will become president on January 20th. But how he got there was a mess. Mobs of supporters of President Trump stormed the U.S. Capitol and broke into the House and Senate chambers. It was a failure of security where members of Congress had to be evacuated and taken to undisclosed locations. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, was in the Capitol while it was raided and shares her experience with us. We will also discuss the fallout. Many are calling for President Trump to be removed after initially encouraging his supporters and continuing to dispute the election. Next, throughout the pandemic, many have had issues with claiming unemployment benefits, some waiting months for payments. But there has also been scammers cashing in on fraud in the system to the tune of $32 billion. Many of the scammers are coming out of Nigeria, but they can't do it alone and use mule networks to get it done. Many of the victims are also people who are employed but have had their identity stolen. Nick Penzenstadler, reporter at USA Today, joins us for how scammers are cashing in on unemployment. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The first thing that stands out to me is how embarrassed and disgusted I am that the United States Capitol could be taken over by domestic terrorists while we're in session. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Wednesday, January 6th was quite the day. It really was just a mess all around. It was supposed to be the day that Congress convened to ratify the electoral votes for President-elect Joe Biden. We knew there was going to be some fireworks because lawmakers were going to be objecting to the electoral votes. We knew that was going to happen. We knew people were going to be marching, but nobody expected this really all-out assault on the Capitol building that happened The day started with President Trump speaking to his supporters, saying march out over there. And then very quickly, everything turned around. Congress was already in the process of objecting to some of those electoral votes. I think it was Arizona. Uh, So then the both houses retreated to their own chambers to debate and all that. And everything got crazy. Ginger, you were there covering the event. You got swept up into all of it. You had to be evacuated, taken to a secure location. I want to start there because people watching at home were watching everything unfold on the outside. And on the inside, we really couldn't see what was happening anymore. So, Ginger, help us walk through the madness that was going on. What was the first indication that you knew something was going horribly wrong? Yeah, you know, I've covered Congress in Washington for nearly a decade. I've worked in the Capitol building hundreds and hundreds of days. But at first, it seemed normal. There are protests outside the Capitol on a regular basis. And I was sitting in the rotunda watching as the senators walked back to their chamber from the House, watching as Mike Pence followed behind them. I, I shouted a question at him. And then I realized I could hear the protest inside. They had surrounded the building. They were on both sides of the building. I started watching them out the windows and I could see that they were coming over the barricades and the police were just overwhelmed and swamped and they could no longer do anything to stop them. It was at that point I went out into a hallway and the police started shouting at us to get away from the windows and then to take cover. And it was at that point I began to hear the protesters inside the building. They were at that moment, a uh, floor or two below me. They had entered on the first and second floor. I was on the third floor. And we locked ourselves into our workspace, which is in that sort of a tiny attic on the fourth floor above the Senate. 
obviously we have seen what developed. Four people ended up dying, three for medical conditions, but one person, a woman was actually shot and she was taken to get some help, but she later died. Did you hear any of those gunshots? I was above the Senate and the woman who was shot by Capitol Police was on the House side of the building. So for any listener who's never been inside the Capitol, it's really about the size of a city block. It's a quite large building. So I couldn't hear it. But we at that point were reporters, television producers, sort of hunkered down in this office. We had turned the lights off. We had barricaded the doors. And then we were just watching, watching our televisions, watching Twitter, trying to see what had happened, hearing from our colleagues that were on the other side of the building or in some of these places getting emails. And so we were sort of watching it come in in real time and then listening to make sure that they hadn't found our door. They hadn't found our little space. We covered up the words press, fearful that if they did find us and they knew who we were, we would be in danger. And we just waited. So we knew that there was gunfire. We knew that someone had been shot. We were sort of trapped in the space that we had been. Did you spend the entire time there or did you get evacuated somewhere else? Or how many hours were you barricaded down? Yeah, so we were barricaded for about two hours and 45 minutes. It took that long before we could be evacuated from the building. It took over an hour before law enforcement made it to us. So there was a big amount of time before we even heard what was going on or that anything had been secured. Police did eventually evacuate us. We went to a secure location. We were held basically in the same place as some of the senators. So they asked us not to tell people where we were held, but we were held there. They gave us dinner and I spent another two hours there in a heavily guarded room with those folks there. Lots of FBI agents with large guns stood outside the door. And then after about two hours, they let us go back into the Capitol once they had secured the building. Well, I'm very glad that you're safe and made it out of there unscathed and everything. I texted you at one point just so we can maybe do some coverage. And I had no idea you were going through all of that, you know, at the time. So as I said, I'm just happy that you're safe for all of this. You did talk about the Capitol Police and all that. Security is a huge issue. And a lot of people are just flummoxed about how this could have happened there. They knew there was going to be a lot of protesters. Maybe obviously nobody thought that they would be raiding the Capitol building. You know, we're hearing words like insurrection, sedition, mobs, terrorists, domestic terrorists. All these things are being thrown around. And really, the police force there was just not prepared for any of it. They were not prepared. They were vastly outnumbered. You know, I've seen many protests at that building, whether it was Tea Party protest, Black Lives Matter, a number of protests. And normally you see just a real show of force from the police department. They clearly didn't think that we would see those numbers. The Capitol is normally full of people. The tourists that come in, field trips, people who come in and get tourists from their lawmakers. It hasn't been, obviously, for a long time now because of COVID. And I have wondered if that was why we saw a little bit of a different security posture. The building was empty of those kind of people that would normally be there. And so it was something that was unusual. And I will say it was Capitol Police officers who were protecting us. And some of them were quick to come and try to protect us. But I think that we're going to hear a lot of questions from lawmakers, from people in the media, from the public about how they allowed this to happen. And what if it had been not someone who wanted to come in and steal papers off of Nancy Pelosi's desk, but someone who had wanted to come in and do quite a bit of harm to them. And I think that we're going to see congressional investigations. We saw Speaker Pelosi calling for the chief of Capitol Police to resign. 
Senate Majority Leader or incoming Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer saying that he will fire the Sergeant at Arms of the Senate if he does not resign before he becomes the Majority Leader on January 20th. And so I think that there's been a beginning of questioning and investigations into what happened yeah. with the police department. Definitely shown a lot of weakness on that day. And now to all the fallout. None of this stopped what Congress was set to do, affirm Biden's presidential win. It happened. A bunch of senators that were set to continue opposing the electoral votes came back and said, it's not worth it. We're not going to do it anymore. The tone of the whole thing changed, obviously. And we didn't see anybody really speaking up. There was a couple more objections, but those got smoothed over pretty quickly and they affirmed his win. And now we're seeing all sorts of stuff. Calls for impeachment again, invoking the 25th Amendment to remove President Trump. He had to make a video message. He tweeted a couple of things. Everything that he did was completely weak in trying to control anything. He didn't really want to, it didn't seem like. And we're seeing cabinet officials resign. Mick Mulvaney, his former acting chief of staff, had some very interesting words saying the president hasn't been the same the past eight months. This is his new legacy. We had some successes, but this is all Trump now. And really nobody happy with the president at all. I mean, we're seeing Republicans and Democrats say that he should be removed from office using the 25th Amendment, a means that allows the vice president and the cabinet to determine that he's incapacitated or unfit for office. I would be surprised if we saw that happen, but it is it not been ruled out publicly, at least by the vice president or any members of the cabinet. So it remains an option on the table. Speaker Pelosi said that she would support an impeachment if the vice president doesn't do that. But let's be clear, impeachments take time. Even if they moved as swiftly as they could, it would be very difficult to do in the last 13 days. And it would also require the Senate to hold a hearing, a trial. That's unlikely to happen. But we're seeing a concern about how the president behaved yesterday, the role he played in encouraging violence, and the fact that, as you said, he praised these people on Twitter before Twitter deleted the tweets and then took away his access. And because they took away his access, and we still don't know if it's been restored, we haven't heard from him on Thursday. He has not made any public appearances. And so we are waiting to see what he does next and how he moves forward after yesterday. One final question, and we're going to talk again soon for the podcast, but I just wanted to get your last reaction to all of this. A lot of people said when they saw all the madness that was going around, that is not America. A lot of other people said that is America. That shows how divided we are and the anger that's out there. Just final thoughts on the day. I mean, it was sadness. I felt so sad. I sat in a dark room. I locked myself in a closet. At one point, I thought I had heard them and I turned the lights off and I sat back against the door. And it is a sadness I felt more even than being scared that this is where we are. So I think that just those who say this is not America, it's not. And those who say this is America, it is. We are living this. And I think that you can't help but feel a profound sense of sadness about what unfolded yesterday. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It is important during times of crisis, we all remain vigilant to the numerous types of scams, diverting much needed resources to the genuine recovery efforts. Joining us now is Nick Penzenstadler, reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Yeah, happy to be here. 
We've been doing some stories recently about unemployment benefits and how, you know, it's taking months and months to actually receive any unemployment aid. Obviously, there's a bunch of backlogs they're working through to try to root out any fraud that's going on. And then I came across your article talking about how scammers have siphoned off about $36 billion in fraudulent unemployment payments from the United States. It's kind of an all too familiar theme, I guess. You know, it's people that are kind of imposters posing as someone else, throwing out some of the information that they can buy some of these hacked databases. And you actually got to speak to somebody who was involved in some of this. Tell us a little bit about what we're seeing and how people are just scamming the unemployment benefits. I think it's important to think about that hacked information, you know, through data breaches. You hear about that in the news a lot. And I think a lot of people shrug it off when it happens because nothing immediately happens to you. There's, there aren't really the consequences until maybe down the line. And this is exactly that scenario where compromised information has been floating kind of on the dark web for years maybe, and now the bad guys are exploiting it. And the way it works is they're using a stolen social security number and a date of birth and a name that all match to file for unemployment in that person's name. So it's not like synthetic fake person. It's a real person who's had their identity stolen with a bad guy using it to file for the unemployment. Yeah. And sometimes you need a little bit of extra information. You know, the office is asking you for other stuff. And in that way, you know, they'll go on some sites like Family Tree Now, Truthfinder, to get other information that they might need to be able to fill out these applications. I think one of the people that you spoke to that was, has been partaking in some of this said that one in six attempts are successful for them. And a lot of these scammers are coming out of Nigeria. That was the case for the person you spoke to. What was that like? Yeah, we had this pretty rare opportunity to talk to a scammer. They're called threat actors by the cybersecurity folks who deal with them. And the firm we interviewed, you know, spends time with these people to try to learn how they're running these scams and they pay them for the information. So the scammers are all too happy to share a little bit because they share it widely. There are these channels that share these scripts and these methods and they're all in on it. So this guy came on an interview with us and walked us through each step of the process. And, you know, we were able to ask him, you know, what happens when they're pressing for your identity and how much time do you spend on it? Do you do this all day? And this one gentleman told us he does. He does it all day long. He takes a break during the day and he's made about $50,000 since the pandemic started just on unemployment scams. So it's his full-time job. One of the interesting questions you asked too, if they felt any remorse for this. And he said, no, not at all. We don't know these people. We don't know who or where they are. So to them, it doesn't bother them one bit. And that's the same case with some of these romance scams that are also tied in with this. So a lot of times to extract the money from the system, they're not actually getting paid from, you know, the state unemployment system to the scammer. It has to go through a few different channels. So they often exploit people to receive the money in the United States before sending it overseas to them. You contacted all 50 states to see how much fraud money had been paid out. Not everybody got back, obviously. We heard some stories. California said that they suspect as much as $2 billion was paid out in improper payments. One of the states you focus on heavily in this is Washington. For a time, they had to stop sending out some money so that they can catch back up. I think in two weeks, when everything started, when the CARES Act had been passed, they found about $600 million had been paid out already. So tell us a little bit how these states were handling it. If you remember, Washington was kind of first in the United States for getting hit so hard with the pandemic and shutting things down. So that led to that big surge in unemployment claims. So fraudsters took notice of that. They tried to exploit 
and hammer the Washington system with all of these claims that were bogus. And it took a few weeks before Washington State realized, one, a ton of these are fraud, and two, we need to catch up with our systems to flag them and then try to get the money back. So that particular state had been sending money through Green Dot accounts, which is a mobile banking app. The people who normally use those accounts are exactly who they're trying to help. But fraudsters, again, exploited that and used some of the flexibilities of those mobile banking accounts to get the money and get it quickly and then transfer it before the state could realize what was happening. What do we know about how much money some of these states might have recovered? Because in the Washington example, they noticed about $600 million that was stolen. They were able to recover about $350 million of that. Are these states disclosing any of that, or how are we finding some of that out? Yeah, states are much more transparent about the money they have gotten back or the moment the suspected fraud they stopped. They're less transparent about what's gone out the door that they don't think they'll ever get back. So it really depends on what type of scam was being operated. So if it was money sent directly to a bank and the state can go right to that bank and say, we know this is fraud, this is how we know, here's proof, the bank will send it right back. Things get a lot more complicated if that money has already been transferred or gone through a few different layers, and it's much less likely that they'll ever see that money back. There's a lot of interesting aspects of this whole thing. Part of it is, is that these scammers use kind of these mule networks, and you mentioned, you know, mobile banking apps, and they use these things to get around some of the traditional banking methods. Yeah, so these money mules are really a problem in the United States. The FBI has keyed on this during the pandemic because we saw cases of unemployment money being paid out to regular bank accounts and then withdrawn in cash, packaged up and mailed across the country to another mule before it was sent overseas. And as you mentioned, too, a lot of these victims are people with stolen identities. You had an example in your article of a woman who was currently working. She had a job, but she kept getting you know notifications or, or messages saying that, oh, we sent you some unemployment money. It's been flagged as fraud. You need to pay it back. And she's like, well, I never received any of this money. You know, I didn't go through this process. I have a job. And she had to have her employer get involved to help stop that. Yeah, that's the most frustrating part of this for a lot of people is fully employed people finding out that someone had filed for unemployment in their name just creates a huge headache for them. So that was one of the tips coming out of this is even if you are employed and you don't expect to lose your job or need unemployment, you can still go and set up your profile in a state unemployment site just to kind of lock it down and secure it so no one else can go put your social security number and birth date in and to access it. So that's one thing you can do to try to protect yourself. We've heard tons of stories of this is like, this is how people are interacting with this, where they don't file for unemployment. They never have. They don't think they're a victim, but all of a sudden someone's using their identity to pull off this scam. It's just a really unfortunate situation because we're hearing stories from these people that legitimately need unemployment aid. And it's taking months and months to work through the backlog, to work through these fraudulent checks. You know, if somebody gets flagged, it takes months to resolve some of these things. And in the meantime, not always, obviously, but sometimes these scammers are getting through and getting some of that money. So that's just so unfortunate to hear. But these are kind of the problems that these agencies are facing in the background. So we'll definitely keep a monitor on this to see what else comes of it. Nick Penzenstadler, reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.